Okay, it should be going live very soon. So we're live. Namaste Sahanaji. Thank you so much for joining uh, HSC for our second um, chat 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 episode. Um, welcome again to everyone on our platform. So Sahanaji is currently director of Indian History Awareness and Research. And Sahanaji, to begin the episode, um, I'd like to just get you to explain a little bit about um, the work that IHAR does. Um, and why you feel it's important, um, especially for the Hindu American youth who are growing up here in the US. So I'll, I'll let you take that part away. Yeah, namaste uh, to everyone. It's a privilege to speak to the next generation of Hindus uh, who are so interested in uh, Indian history and culture. So I represent IHAR, Indian History Awareness and Research, which is a, a think tank based in, the, in Houston. And we are uh, digging out narratives of Indian history, which have uh, been largely ignored by mainstream scholars. Uh, and uh, we are looking at uh, history from the Indic perspective. And also we are looking at it from the, you know, from the sources, Indic sources of uh, literature, history. Uh, and, and, you know, so early, as you know, we have, uh, India has been uh, ruled by uh, different, uh, different uh, people. Uh, and it has been uh, it has been invaded. It has been colonized, and a lot of our history has not been written uh, by us. So in, in our uh, think tank tries to correct that, and we are looking at history with a fresh perspective, and we are looking at it with a, a multidisciplinary approach. So with a big vision, so we are engineers, physicians, uh, uh, media persons, all people from uh, different backgrounds, so that uh, we all approach history from different viewpoints. It's not just uh, humanities uh, people who are looking at history as it used to be before. So, and we are also look, applying very rigorous science to what we are uh, studying, what we are looking at. So that's what India uh, IHAR does. And uh, so we have been doing workshops, delivering talks, writing books, and we are also planning a conference on Indian chronology very soon in, uh, in India in a couple of months. Maybe I can talk about that later. Awesome. Yeah, we'd love to hear about that. So on today's episode, uh, we're going to be discussing specifically the history of India's educational systems and its educational heritage. Okay. So you've written a book, uh, The Educational Heritage of Ancient India, How an Ecosystem of Learning Was Laid to Waste. Yes. Um, can you first explain why? Um, <laughs> there it is. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so can you first? Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, go on. What's your question? So I was going to ask you, can you uh, explain why you felt the need um, to focus on the history of India's educational systems and its institutions? Um, and what, uh, what actually is the history of them? Okay. So, uh, so I, I often get asked, you know, why are Indians uh, so focused on education, on getting degrees, on higher education? Even you as uh, uh, growing up in the US, you might have noticed how Indian parents tend to put a lot of pressure on their children to study hard, to do well, uh, right? So on grades, on, on getting all those degrees. So, um, so I was uh, interested to know why we are this way, that we are so focused on education. And of course, there were other experiences. When I moved to the US, I found that the textbooks, in, uh, the history textbooks that my daughter was using 
was not representing Indian uh, history correctly. It was uh, too negative. It was just talking about the caste systems, the, uh, you know, the gender inequality in India and such things. So I felt that was just, that didn't, I couldn't identify with what they wrote about India. In order to, uh, to uh, explain that better, I had to do my own research. So that's how I started uh, reading a lot of books. And I found that there's so much information out there that people uh, don't, uh, have, are not paying attention to, and it's only in the academic world. So I felt that there's a need to write a book in a simpler language, bringing all those various narratives together. So that's when I started uh, doing this. So I wrote a series of articles on uh, education in ancient India, and then that finally became a book. Very nice. And so today we also wanted to focus, of course, on what exactly the nature of these institutions uh, were. Um, so can you explain briefly how the educational institutions in India and the way that um, epistemology and learning worked in ancient India is different from how it works both in India and in the US today? What was unique and what were the unique contributions of that system? Okay, so if you want, I can just speak for about 10 minutes just on what's in my book and that'll answer all those things that you're asking. Of course. Okay, so, uh, so today we live in a world where we take for granted that we go to school and then we go to college, we specialize in a subject of our choice and all this is so institutionalized, but we, many of us don't know that this comes from, a, from the Indian civilization, which is where it all started. Okay, so um, the ancient Indians were deeply invested in gaining perspectives about the material and the moral, the physical and the spiritual, you know, the, the permanent and the temporary. So they had, they, they had so many questions and uh, in finding the answers to that, they evolved, uh, they br brought out the rules of grammar, logic, science, and all those discoveries that we know today came from that, okay? So there was a deep sense of sacredness on, uh, around the whole concept of learning and teaching. That's why when um, children, uh, uh, both boys and girls reached a certain age, there would be a sacred ceremony where they would learn to read and write for the first time. So it, that ceremony still survives as uh, Vidya Rambha in Southern India today. And um, in Bengal, it's called uh, Hati Kori. So this shows that, you know, there's a sacred ceremony where children are initiated into reading and writing. That shows how important education is for uh, India. And then there used to be uh, something called the Upanayana, which you might know where when, the, when students embarked on higher education, that was another sacred ceremony where uh, they would make, uh, make a lot of oaths, they would, uh, they would promise you know, to learn, to, to be uh, celibate, because being a brahmachari was very important. You know, when you're studying, you should not be diverted by, uh, by, you know, by other things. So you have to focus uh, single-mindedly on education. So then there was a period when, uh, uh, when students focused only on studying, learning from the guru. Okay? And then there was also a sacred ceremony associated with graduation when 12 years of study was completed. And it, sometimes they would finish earlier. And then there was a samavartana, which was when you took leave of the guru, you gave guru dakshina, and you made certain promises to the guru to use the learning in a good way, not for the uh, ill of mankind and those kind of things. Okay. And um, so there was, uh, there was a mad rush for gaining an education from the Indian professors. So uh, it was very interesting for me to know that the students came from all over the world, whichever part of the world was civilized at that time, 
came, uh, they sent their best students to study in India. So like today, how students flock to America to study in Ivy League universities, or they try to go to Oxford and uh, Cambridge, India was like that. And so the students came from all over the world. Uh, you know, they came from uh, Western Asia, China, Japan, Southeast Asia. And so there was, it was also not, they, they, they undertook very arduous journeys to reach India. It was, it was not easy, right? Today travel is so easy. But in those days they had to walk, they had to come by ship, they had to climb mountains. And in spite of all those difficulties, so many students would land up in India. So if you read the accounts of Zuan Zhang, Pahiyan, the Chinese uh, students who came here, you will see how many sacrifices they made in order to come and study in India. So that was it. Now, the, you stop me whenever you feel I'm talking too much because I'm going to get carried away. <laughs> uh, so the earliest universities in uh, India were forest universities, right in the lap of nature. So uh, we hear of uh, uh, Rishi Kanva's uh, ashrama, which was actually a collection of ashramas all close to each other. So it was like different departments of a university and a student would go to one guru and gain, uh, gain knowledge in one subject. And after that, the, that guru would send him to the next uh, ashram located near to that. And, or, and then similarly go to other gurus and complete the, what you would call a degree today after over some, uh, maybe 10 years, 12 years, 15 years. And this was presided over by Kanva. This is mentioned in Mahabharata. So this is what you, we could call that a university, a forest university. And then later on, we had the other kinds of universities, the brick and mortar universities. Then there were also temple universities, a whole variety of uh, institutes which taught uh, based on the need of the students. Then it was also, it's also interesting when you go back and see that there were no artificial barriers between a religion and science, like you would see in the Christian world, right? They have tried to separate them, but that was not needed in India because religion itself would often lead to science because there was a lot of questioning, debating in, within uh, religious practices itself in India. So for example, in, uh, in trying to draw the perfect squares and rectangles in order to do the Homa, you know, uh, they, would, they, they formulated the rules of geometry. And then in order, when they wanted to find the perfect time to perform the, uh, the homas, uh, then they, in, in the process of doing that, they formulated the rules of, you know, the, the laws of planetary motion and celestial bodies. And similarly, grammar, pronunciation, it all came from religion because they wanted perfect pronunciation. They wanted rules of grammar. So there were no artificial barriers. And that's how so many, uh, so many of the, what you would call the religious people were actually scientists. They were the ones uh, like Bhaskaracharya, Brahmagupta, right? They all were very religious and it was their religion uh, which helped them to make all these scientific discoveries. Uh, so uh, what was your question? Did you have any specific question? Uh, or you... So I guess based on what you said, I have one question that's at the front of my mind, which is it seems from your description that learning in India uh, was traditionally very interdisciplinary, where what you learned from one um, area naturally translates into knowledge and learning in another area. Right. Um, and so what are the, are there some examples of the advantages in the complementary, uh, in these complementarities? Um, well, it is spelled out. The interdisciplinary education has been spelled out by Sushruta himself in uh, Sushruta Samhita. So that is the oldest text on, on medicine that we have available today. It talks about surgery, right? And Sushruta is often called 
the father of uh, Ayurveda. But of course, he's in a long line of uh, Ayurvedic scholars. So he doesn't say he's the father of Ayurveda. He's, he cites many others. So he mentions, and there is a shloka in Sushruta Samhita which says that a person who is only well-versed in his own science uh, is not uh, would not have enough knowledge. You have to know uh, other sciences in order to uh, have a holistic uh, knowledge. So that itself spells out the interdisciplinary approach to uh, knowledge. So this was in medicine very clearly stated. So if you uh, so those who studied medicine would need to know so many other things. You know, they would need to even know how to cook because so many of the medicines that came uh, were came from the kitchen, right? So they would also need to be good cooks. Uh, and so it was very interdisciplinary. I mean, if you see how the mathematics uh, uh, works are also having, uh, are very poetic. So you can see that humanities and mathematics and sciences, they all go together. Imagine writing in two lines, a shloka, which is both poetic and beautiful. At the same time, it conveys a mathematical concept. It was that interdisciplinary. Wow. Right. So... Yes, sir, were you saying something? Yeah, you, so I just thought I'll tell you about the spread of universities all over India. So in the, in the north, you had Kashmir. Uh, and in Kashmir, there was Sharda University. So today, we, everybody has forgotten the name Sharda University. But the, it was called Sharda Desh, Kashmir, because of the Sharda Peak, where so many people went to study. And it was very difficult, again, to get admission there. right? And it also had a wonderful library where people came from large distances to refer. For example, Ramanuja came from Tamil Nadu all the way. He went to uh, uh, Kashmir in order to refer to some manuscript before he wrote his Mahabhashya. He wanted the uh, commentary of Brahma Sutras, which was only available in the Kashmir library uh, attached to the university. And then if you, go, if you went uh, in the Bihar, Bihar Bengal area, there was, so, it was so many universities, Nalanda, Vikramshila, Somapura, Vikrampur, I mean, a whole lot of them, right? And we still have not excavated all those universities. So, in fact, in Bihar, uh, when I went last year, they told me that there's a university called Telhara, which is being excavated. People still don't know about. In the west of India, there was uh, Pallabi University in Gujarat. That was also very well known. In, the, in central India, there was Ujjain, there was uh, Dhar. And then if you go to the south, it was they're full of temples. And temples were universities too, many of them, especially the big temples because they became a magnet for scholars and for, uh, professors. And so they, uh, many of the temples had annexes where you could hold uh, lectures and debates. So uh, temples, agraharas, and agraharas were where uh, sometimes kings would give an endowment to many Brahmins to establish, uh, to live there uh, near the temple. And so those colonies became places where students would go to the houses of the, uh, of the gurus to learn from them directly. And they would all have the houses next to each other. And so you could have debate, you know, one could come out and then, you know, they would all be together talking to each other. And it was just vibrant, a vibrant atmosphere of learning all over India. There was a premium on education and people who were learned were highly, highly respected. So if you read uh, Zhuang Zhang's uh, account, he talks about how the love for knowledge is not forced. It is planted like seeds. Uh, the seeds of curiosity are planted in the child in childhood itself, and nobody has to force anybody to study. They are just themselves so motivated. And he speaks about uh, learned people who are not interested in any luxury, any pleasure. They lead very austere lives, and they keep traveling all over India, teaching students, uh, having discussions, learning, uh, you know, uh, uh, expanding the body of knowledge. 
so it was very unselfish okay and the other thing i want to talk about is the ecosystem of learning which which existed wherein the whole society was supporting uh, those who were studying and those who were teaching right so for example in nalanda the nalanda university was supported by the revenues of 100 villages around nalanda right uh, so so the students who got admission there did not have to worry about uh, food drink medicines so the and the professors also right so they are all their needs were taken care of with the help of the revenues of 100 villages and it was the culture was such that a student or a guru could just walk and knock at a door and say that you know the concept of uh, bhiksha uh, so bhiksha was not begging many people translate it into begging but it was just that a student who is uh, who is known to not have his own source of income his or her source of income would can knock at any door and say that i'm uh, i uh, i want food and and the householders would give them food gladly because they would respect them for giving up their their life to learning so that was the ecosystem of learning that i'm talking about uh, and also you know the brahmins were not supposed to be uh, to amass wealth so the typical uh, brahmin would be poor so throughout the student days they would not have wealth of your own right the society has to provide for them so that they are able to focus on their studies and their research so they were poor and uh, whereas the all the other varnas were uh, were uh, allowed to have their wealth to uh, to to store their wealth right uh, and so they gladly gave uh, contributions to brahmins so whenever they performed any homa they would they would give to brahmins because they knew that the brahmins are not uh, making money for themselves so that was that's the ecosystem of learning where everybody is supporting education knowledge learning and that's the reason why you have so much of knowledge so many texts in all various fields right medicine uh, you know shilpa shastra uh, every field every field of knowledge that you can think of uh, has uh, owes a lot to what the scholars the brahmin scholars did in ancient india That's great. So one uh, question that comes to mind um, is that a lot of the, uh, I guess, support for universities was through public funding. Are there examples from ancient India of private funding of universities as well? In private funding, as in uh, maybe industrialists. Uh, yes, I mean that was the culture. That was the culture. So uh, the the taxes that were given to the government would be used. for these uh, for the brahmin uh, for the scholars and uh, of course when i mean brahmins uh, it's not just brahmins by birth there were also many who took an interest in a subject and were pursued it and then they would they would be also initiated okay uh, so yeah there was all kinds of funding there were there were pub- there was public funding uh, you know the pe- the villages giving their uh, helping the students and the uh, contributing to universities like when i went to nalanda you know there was a storeroom where the villagers used to bring rice and grains all the food needed they would put it in that room for the for the students okay and uh, kings of course uh, used to give it to they also was uh, they, they were also debate tournaments intellectual tournaments where scholarships would be awarded to the to the students who spoke the best who were the most logical who were the most learned and using the more you know the best language so that scholarships were also given by by the state uh so more of i think more of public funding yes but also yes it was considered a very you know if you see the inscriptions 
in, um, in South India, you can see that uh, there, are, there are examples of private funding where, where rich people have donated to this college for so many students to study. It's all there in the inscriptions, right? And there are, that the inscriptions show how institutionalized education was because it, uh, they specify how much of uh, allowance is to be given to the students. Uh, and for, uh, for example, those studying the easier subjects would be given lower allowance. Those studying the higher imams, uh, uh, Vedanta would be given higher uh, allowance. The teacher would be given 16 times allowance of the uh, student. Uh, all those things are mentioned in the inscriptions. So it's very, it was very institutionalized. So one question that's coming in from uh, our viewers, which is, uh, I guess, based on something that you mentioned, um, is, so this uh, viewer is asking, is it true that uh, people who are shudras by profession were wealthier than Brahmins because Brahmins could not amass wealth? Yes, there were plenty of very wealthy shudras, Vaishyas, Kshatriyas. Of course, I'm not saying there were no wealthy Brahmins. I mean, it's not like everybody is strictly following the rule. Uh, there might have been some corrupt among them, but they were not respected. So if there is a, a teacher, a Brahmin teacher who is very rich, he's not going to be given the same respect as someone who is following all the austerities because austerities were very hard. You know, a Brahm, the Brahmins have to be very clean. They have to wake up early morning, have bath five times a day and all that. I mean, there's so many, I don't know if it was all being followed, but that is what was prescribed for the Brahmins. There were more, more prescriptions for what Brahmins have to do than for all the other Varnas. The other Varnas were freer. Um, and also, you know, the artisans, many, uh, many of the artisans were Shudras. If you see the, if you read the Arthashastra, it talks about artisans, Shudras being artisans. So then, you know, all these different artisans producing various products that were all exported, that were so valuable uh, throughout the world, were coming from Shudras, right? So they were keeping their money. Uh, so it is uh, not what it is portrayed in mainstream uh, history, you know, where it's, it's like Shudras being oppressed and Brahmins reigning over them. It was not that. Brahmins also had a very tough life. So another question uh, coming in from another viewer. Uh, so this is about foreign funding of Indian universities. So the question is, while visiting um, Thailand and Cambodia and the museums there, um, people often read that the princes from Thailand and Cambodia would uh, go to uh, universities in India like Nalanda to get education and their fathers, the kings, the monarchs of these kingdoms in Southeast Asia would then fund um, Indian universities. Could you speak about that relationship between Southeast Asia and India and, and the educational link there? So what I know is that Yi um, uh, uh, Jing has mentioned that he didn't go to India directly to study. He first went to Indonesia and there he had a kind of like a course. He studied there and he learned, probably learned Sanskrit so it's also th a thing that not everybody went directly to India because it was very hard to compete with the students of India, right? So many of them would go to the other, the satellite countries like, so in Indonesia, for example, gain, uh, gain some learning there and then go to uh, India to compete. So it's, it's not surprising at all that uh, there were rulers from uh, Southeast Asia because they held India in, in such high regard. Right, and uh, it was considered a very a noble activity to give to a university, which is uh, training students, which is teaching them so many subjects, making them knowledgeable. So yes, that was uh, that was uh, quite uh, quite common. Yeah, and I, I just also want—I don't know if I mentioned about debating, right? Uh, so debating uh, is was so intrinsic to Indian education. 
Uh, and so, you know, if you go and see, uh, if you if there is uh, this famous uh, debate between Adi Shankara and Mandana Mishra, like which went on for days, and you can see that the, the judge is a lady, She's herself a learned scholar, and she's the judge. That so that puts to rest all those insinuations that women were not allowed to study, they were not educated, and all that. Okay, so debating was very important, and they were they, it was if you, when you went to debate somebody, you had to be very thorough with that other person's point of view. His, you should have read all that he has written, or you should have heard it. You should know, be well versed in the opponent's point of view before you put him or her on in a debate. Okay, and there are so many texts which talk about uh, Tarka Vidya, Vada Vidya, right? And all, all, all so many of the ancient Mahabharata, uh, Chandogya Upanishad, they all mention this uh, the, the, the culture of debate. And that's why we had this pre questioning us, and then, then that led, led to reasoning, logic. Right, Dunyaya Shastra is full of logic. It talks about, uh, you know, what is good reasoning and bad reasoning, right? Uh, so it, it, it tells you not to make wrong assumptions. So this would be a wrong assumption. Whereas this, so it's it's amazing how much importance was given to uh, debating to logic. Right. So um, another question coming in from a viewer. Um, so at the beginning. Uh, Sahanaj, you mentioned that the Chinese and scholars from other countries would visit India. So at the peak of the university ecosystem, how common was it for scholars from other countries to actually come and visit India? And what were the countries that uh, Indians transmitted the most knowledge to? And where do we see the remnants of that Indian ecosystem of knowledge in these countries? So I, uh, I have seen uh, that I think the, with China, there was very intense interaction in the beginning. Right, the earliest, uh, actually it's very hard to say even China because we're still discovering things. You know, there was even in ancient times, there seems to have been a connection with Greeks as well, right? We have also interacted a lot with Greeks. But yes, if you want to know about China, then uh, we have records from the, uh, I think the early, uh, first century CE or maybe uh, the first century uh, BCE. From then on, you can see there is intense interaction between India and China. And uh, mostly in mainstream history, you would read about the Chinese coming to study in India. But there is, there is also a lot of, the, of uh, there are records which talk about Indian scholars being invited to China uh, and uh, to translate the texts into Chinese. So hundreds of Indian scholars have traveled to China and they, they used to be treated as special guests by the Chinese kings. And then they would... Uh, and so it, it, in China, it was considered a very sacred activity to translate an, uh, an Indian text into Chinese. So, and most of these were Buddhist texts actually, but then Buddhism, uh, not just philosophy, but also science, right? Science, maths, uh, mathematics, everything. All this came in, uh, under, in, the, uh, in, the, in, the, in the category of sacred literature. So these, it, there was a competition between these Chinese scholars who came to India so who could, about who could carry the maximum number of manuscripts or who could copy the maximum number of manuscripts and take them to, um, uh, to China, okay? So we have even evidence of uh, scholars from Kanchipuram uh, traveling to China, settling down there, and even their names used to get changed. Once uh, many of these Indian scholars went to China, their names would be changed. They would have Chinese names. So today, when you read their works, you would probably not know that they were from India, okay? So there was a big influx of Chinese scholars into India and also Indian scholars going to China. And then when it comes, you take, uh, talk about other parts of the world, well, the, the Islamic scholars 
uh, early Islamic scholars took a lot of knowledge from India. So even when the Ghazni, Mahmud Ghazni invaded India, there was Al-Biruni with him. Al-Biruni came and you know, he, he was not following um, Mahmud everywhere. He was interacting with the scholars in India. He learned Sanskrit and he was trying to get as much knowledge from them as possible in astronomy, mathematics, right? Uh, so, and that's how the, the Muslim uh, scholars took, uh, translated many of uh, these Sanskrit books into Arabic and uh, Persian. And then from there, it, was, it went to Europe. It, uh, trans, it was translated into Latin. So my colleague Raj Vedam has done a lot of work in this area. So if you read his uh, papers, and in my book also, my book on the educational heritage of India, I have taken uh, from Raj, Raj's work. So from the Muslim scholars, our, the Indian knowledge, knowledge was transmitted to Europe. And then uh, not, uh, credit was not given to India. Uh, the Arabic scholars, uh, many of them uh, uh, gave credit to India, right? The, uh, uh, the, you know, you have all these Al-Kindi, Al-Fargani, uh, Al-Khwarizmi, some of them did give credit to India. But then when it was translated into Latin, uh, they did not even give credit to the Muslim scholars. So that, so if you see the European Renaissance is completely the, it is the translation of uh, the Arabic and Persian texts into Latin. And most of those texts came from India. And Southeast Asia, yes, if you see uh, in Southeast Asia also, they, uh, in those days, it, there were many Hindu kingdoms all over Southeast Asia. So they, they were familiar with Indian languages. And so they would, uh, so the manuscripts were brought and they were taught. And uh, it, it was, uh, it was, it was, it was it, Indonesia itself is named after India, right? Uh, so it was, it was all attributed to India, whatever knowledge that they pursued. They would look towards India for the correct interpretation, the correct understanding. So if you see in China, there's an instance of a debate um, of between us in, uh, in China or in Tibet. There were two people who were having a debate in front of the king. And in order to have the final decision, they invited some scholars from India to give the final decision on who is right. The king invited the Indian scholar. So it was like that. India, Indian scholars had the final word. Right. So one question that comes to mind um, when you were talking, especially about the tradition of debating within Indian culture, um, and you know this because you're very active on social media, is that the debating culture in India has, has really collapsed and the standard has gone down. So I'm wondering from you um, how this, um, I mean, broad, more broadly than just debating, but how this educational system uh, degenerated over time and how you think it can be uh, you know, reinvigorated um, for modern times? Uh, well, specifically, how did the debating culture degenerate? Well, then the educational heritage system itself degenerated, right? When, when the universities were destroyed, Nalanda was destroyed, Vikram Shila was destroyed, when Bhakti Arkilji came and destroyed so many universities in one go, a whole body of knowledge was gone. The professors were killed. I mean, imagine today if, if some gunmen go to MIT or Stanford and just kill all the professors, kill all the students and just a handful of them managed to escape somewhere. That's what happened to India during the Muslim times, right? Uh, so, so there was enormous persecution of scholars, right? Uh, so the, you, the Lalanda library was burned and then, you know, Kutubuddin Aibak went and destroyed so many temples in Banaras. Banaras was full of scholars, right? So many of them fled with whatever manuscripts they could carry and their families that fled to Southern India. So scholars who managed to survive went to the periphery of the, uh, of the Muslim ru ruled uh, 
regions and and then they built uh, they tried to again in uh, uh, generate new institutions right and some of them did survive but then after that came colonization when the europeans came and colonized india that was i think that was even worse because they were able to uh, convince us to loathe loathe our own systems our own education and to think that uh, the european science and european languages they represented modernity whereas anything indian anything ancient was uh, old and uh, you know regressive so the europeans were able to do that when they made uh, when the british especially and it was a very thought out uh, well thought out strategy right the macaulay system which ensured that the indian languages were uh, were replaced with english and so once you you start uh, and so when you take they also macaulay wrote a letter to uh, i think somebody his family his father i think saying that once they start uh, adopting english they are also going to become christian uh, and so uh, they are going to lose respect for their own traditions right so that is how you know this monotheism and you know all these so this the diversity i think to some extent got reduced when we more shifted to one language and you know we started looking to the west for all 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 knowledge right uh, which so i think now you talk about how to reinvigorate it i think the more we learn about our past i think the more it's going to invigorate us anyway you know we are going to be you're also going to understand that there were so many um, different philosophies which all coexisted nobody was at the throat of the other i mean they were arguing very uh, fiercely debating fiercely but they're not killing each other over different points of view right so i think uh, i think we should try to introduce the uh, older styles uh, older uh, content you know educate uh, which we can borrow from our ancient systems um, and we could we could look at their debating systems too for example there are whole whole lot of books on uh, debating uh, on what qualifies as a, as a good way of debating and what is not good all those things that can actually be used even today uh, yeah so i think we have to reset we have to now get rid of uh, all those uh, the, the toxic atmosphere and we have to actually have that culture of mutual respect and then all that will come back that whole uh, thing that we have lost right and we have to have a healthy respect uh, a healthy sense of identity and we we need to know our history i think that is really going to uh, help us to become more confident uh, and be better versions of ourselves okay so knowing your history is the first step Knowing, so, and, and, and one of the things for that is to know your language. Yes, we're talking. That, that is that is going to unlock it for you. That is going to unlock the history for you. So if you are a Hindi-speaking person, please try to read books in Hindi, converse in Hindi, and then then when you read the uh, translations of Sanskrit texts in Hindi, it will make a lot of sense to you. Because, for example, Panchatantra. If you read Panchatantra in English, uh, you just you just get a very shallow view of the whole text. but so i am reading the hindi uh, panchatantra and it's just so vibrant the meanings are very different and i'm getting three times the depth of what i got from the english panchatantra so not just hindi if you can learn kannada gujarati whatever is your mother tongue i think that is the one of the first steps to decolonize yourself and uh, become a deeper person Do you think this so that what you said I definitely think is very valuable. Do you also think that learning just your own mother tongue is an important um skill 
uh, for people in, living in India. I find that people in India can sometimes not be the best um, communicators because they're not ex experts at any one language. Yes, um, that is true. Uh, so yes, absolutely. If you, if you, it's an, it's, it's like empowering yourself when you learn your mother tongue, because then when you understand your um, the everything better, your everything everything makes more sense, right? Uh, so I think yes. If you if you learn your language, then uh, you probably don't even need to learn Sanskrit because most of the Sanskrit uh, texts have been translated into Indian languages. So it becomes easier for you to understand it in, in your own language. And yes, we definitely speak better because many of us, we don't know whether we are thinking in Hindi or English, you know, it's all mixed up out there, right? So uh, I think it's important to learn your, ideally you should learn only your mother tongue for the first eight or nine years, 10 years of your life and then go on to, that's the way even my father, my mother, they studied that way, right? And so, uh, so they are in fact more articulate. Right. So a couple of questions coming in from um, from viewers. So one is about the degeneration of the system. So this viewer is asking, is it true that only two to three percent of the Vedas survive? Uh, how much knowledge have we actually lost due to conquest and how much has yet uh, still to be analyzed? How much existing knowledge is yet to be translated or looked at? I don't think we can give a definite number to that. I mean, we know that a lot of knowledge is lost. And also, you know, a lot of it was transmitted orally, right? And then some interpolations were also made. Uh, but so it's difficult to talk about how much knowledge was lost, but we know a lot of knowledge was lost. Even Ayurveda, for example. So the Ayurveda which is being practiced today is a very watered down version of Ayurveda, right? So many of those, the, the texts are very succinct, very short, very brief and pithy. And if you, so if, uh, and so if you were, uh, it was transmitted continuously without any breaks, then we would actually know the meanings of all those shlokas. So now there is a lot of guesswork going on on what could they possibly mean, right? So the commentaries were very important. Well, the ancient texts and then their commentaries, thousands and thousands of commentaries were there. And those have also, those have been lost to a great extent. Even Arthashastra was only revealed in the last century, right? It was yes. So we still don't know how many more Shastras are there, right? And also new Shastras ought to have been written. If there was, if we had a continuous civilization without any uh, you know, brutal invasions, maybe new Smritis would have been written in keeping with the times. Okay, one more, uh, I'll catch you a couple more questions coming in. So for people who are interested in learning the older styles of Indian education and implementing them, uh, what is it that they should actually look for in a school? So how can these systems be implemented in, in a modern day setting? So I think I would, uh, I went to this uh, Virat Gurukul Samelan earlier this year and I saw that a lot of initiatives were, uh, were being discussed. I don't know how far they've gone, but you know, people are trying to revive the Gurukul style of uh, education where you actually live with the, uh, you know, in a, in a guru, in an ashrama with the gurus, right? And then, um, and so you imbibe not just what is in the books, but you also imbibe other things, the values and the lifestyle. That was very important in the, in the earlier days. It is lost now, those values, right? Um, so, so, so that, you know, they just don't learn what is in the books, but they also learn a whole lot of other things like respect for nature. So today, for example, we have a separate subject, uh, subject environmental science and environmental engineering. But in the earlier days, it was all, every subject had, had nature in it. 
So if you, whether you were studying chemistry, whether you were studying engineering, you would know that you have to take care of nature. You can't kill the fish in the river. You can't, uh, uh, you know, produce so much uh, smokes or smoke or produce things which would, uh, which would uh, affect the living things, right? So all, all this was embedded in every subject. Every, it was more holistic. So I think we, we need to do a lot of brainstorming. So how do we need to, I think those who are asking the question themselves should think about it, right? How can we do this? I, I think there are a number of new, uh, newer institutions which are trying to do this. I know some, at least at the primary level, I know that uh, they are trying to teach students uh, some in Bangalore, um, in fact, all over India. In Gurukul, there are small, small institutes which are doing good work, right? Which are trying to make the children think critically, you know, not just spoon feeding them. And it's also making them develop memory. We, we make a, we use to mock the rote learning systems uh, that we had, but actually that was very helpful. Today, uh, there's new research which is uh, revealing that uh, improving memory helps in many other ways. It makes you a better person because you're able to remember so much, you're able to marshal so many facts and you're able to, you become a better speaker. And you also remember, you know, you're able to, you, you become a more complete person when your memory is good. So if you just store everything in your devices and then don't remember anything, then you're actually pretty much uh, not a very uh, competent person. Uh, so that is something that also we can learn from the ancient education. How to improve memories, how to use your memory well, use different parts of your brain more effectively. Okay, so... One question, I guess, which is uh, a nice looking forward question um, is, are you hopeful for the future of India's educational system? Uh, why or why not? I'm hopeful, definitely. I would never be, I would never lose hope. I mean, this is a civilization which has survived for so long. Look at, uh, you know, go to Iran, where is the Persian civilization? Go to Egypt, where is the Egyptian civilization? But the Hindus have survived, right? And so I think it's all going to come back together. Uh, and, and, and you people give me hope. Uh, people like you, who are the next generation Hindus, who are taking interest in all this. So I think there is hope. But more of us need to be in policy making. So we need to be in law. We need to be in various fields where we can apply, up, uh, apply the Indic approach, Indic perspective. Because you know, we should not be now looking, uh, you know, become specimens who are being examined by microscopes. From, from the you know from the west so we ourselves need to apply our own yardsticks our own learning you know the triguna the triguna method of analyzing all these things we have to adopt in our uh, in our approach you know uh, so we have to develop our own paradigms so so again start with your own uh, language we get acquainted with your history and then when you get into various fields then the change will come i'm very hopeful so definitely ending on a, on a positive note. Uh, one question I wanted to ask you is, how can our HSC chapters um, get in touch with you and other members of IHAR to help bring this knowledge of our educational and uh, Sanskrit, our, our heritage, our Sanskriti to the younger generation? Um, how can we organize these types of one-on-one -on -one talks with, with more students? Well, you can always get in touch with me by email. So my email is sahana.singh at gmail.com. Uh, so s a h a n e dot singh at gmail dot com, or you can follow me on Facebook, uh, Sahana Singh. Uh, well, unfortunately, I've reached the five thousand limit, but uh, you can follow me or you can message me. I'm also not very active on Twitter, but yes, I can. I'm. I can also be contacted via that. 
and I'll be happy to uh, interact and share knowledge and also learn from you people. That, that's really wonderful. Um, so Zahaneji, thank you so much again for, for joining us uh, today. Before we go, um, I wanted to again um, point out that you've written a book um, that goes through a lot of what we talked today in, in more detail. Um, would you just like to do a quick plug for your book? <laughs> well, I'll show you my book again. So this book, uh, The Educational Heritage of Ancient India, How an Ecosystem of Learning Was Laid to Waste is available on Amazon. So if you Google my, I mean, if you put my name uh, in Amazon, maybe you'll, you'll probably find this book. Uh, so you can order it online. And it's, it's, a, it's a very concise book because I know that today the, there's an attention deficit uh, world and we don't have so much of time. So it's, a, it's just less than 100 pages. So it gives you, it probably whets your appetite to read more on, on the subject. So I hope you will read the book and give me some feedback. Definitely. And um, for those of you who are doing your last minute Cyber Monday sh uh, shopping online, make sure to stop by on Amazon and purchase Sahanaji's book. Um, so Sahanaji, thank you so much again for, for joining us here today. We look forward to having many more conversations with you and with others from IHAR. Thank you very much. It has been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Namaste. Namaste.